Welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Deeker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And Lisa, I can't wait to hear who we're talking to today. Well, we have a, a guess what, a friend and a colleague <laughs> seems to be our theme on our podcast. Uh, so we always start with that as a laugh, but also a, a really, really special um, friend and colleague who knows something that I think the field is so anxious to hear about. And that is really an expertise in bilingual uh, families uh, with special needs. And so Myra Camacho is with us today, who has worked for the Center for Autism Related Disorders, is a behavior specialist, and has set in on numerous IEPs from being a classroom teacher to uh, research she did during her doctorate to current today, still spending time with families as a behavior specialist that are bilingual. Myra, so excited to have you with us and to share your wisdom. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with the first question. I would love to just know, as a monolingual person myself, you know, I always say that with embarrassment because I do realize we're such a mixed culture and, and I so value what someone like yourself brings to my expertise in what I know about families, but I can't communicate. What would be your like go-to tip for the IEP meeting to be more I guess, friendly to our families that have multiple languages, whether there's an interpreter there, whether there's, you know, some like yourself that's kind of helping build that bridge. What what are some things you've seen that, that everybody should be doing just to make that a, a better experience on both sides? Well, I, I think um, starting with having that interpreter in the meeting is very helpful, but I think that is just a small uh, part of what is really important to these families. Um, in my experience, I feel that the cultural aspect is a lot of uh, a, a bigger challenge uh, because um, it's almost like when we think about a, a diagnosis of autism, for example, we cannot assume that everyone who has a diagnosis of autism is going to fit the same mold. Uh, it's the same thing for, for families who are bilingual or who come from another country. Uh, the culture it plays such a great role on how to portray the um, aspect of education, how to discipline their children, um, how they feel about having a, a child with a disability or um, even how they uh, see the role of the teacher in, in their uh, child's uh, life and education. So all of those are, are very important uh, aspects to, to keep in mind when we meet with these families. Uh, sometimes we're meeting with families who just arrived from a different country. Sometimes it's families who have been here for several years and uh, even though they do understand the language, uh, they're still struggling in uh, not only navigating um, having that diagnosis of their child, but also trying to understand the whole uh, ESC system. So they need a lot of support. And I think that although uh, most schools do a great job trying to provide uh, that interpreter for these meetings, I think a, a, a greater part would be for teachers to try to understand a little bit more about the background of this family. Did they just get here? How, how long has this diagnosis uh, been given? Uh, to this family? How much do they know about the diagnosis? How much do they know about the education system and their role? A lot of these families still don't understand that they play a major role in these meetings and in um, um, 
putting together a plan for their own children as to what the school year is going to look like. So empowering these families, I think, is most important. So, you know, I love that, you know, culture, background, understanding, because you're right, just because someone speaks language A, B, or C doesn't mean they're from the same city, the same culture. I mean, if you think of the United right. States, you know, <laughs> it's a little different than it is in California, than it is in Long Island, than it is in Chicago, you know, and, and again, that's that's a great reflection. So I'm wondering too, then let's go just a step past the IEP meeting. What is your like go to for both parents listening as well as teachers. So the IEP meeting is over. What's the best role um, or best action the teacher and or the parents could take next? Like, like what do you recommend after the IEP meeting? Because I think sometimes it's a one and done. And I know you've done a lot of work in kind of making sure that relationship maintains. What do you suggest as next steps? Right. I, I think that continuous communication is very important. And I'm not talking just about, you know, sending an email or um, having the parent go into one of these new apps to kind of check on messages from the teacher. Because a lot of the times technology is not yet something that uh, these families are very comfortable with. And again, I'm not trying to generalize, uh, but it does, you know, I do see this happening a lot. They're not that comfortable yet going and, you know, trying to create an email account or, uh, you know, uh, downloading apps to try to have, the, you know, these dojos or whatever uh, uh, to, to, to keep track of their kids' progress. So uh, phone calls are fantastic if that's possible, but those face-to-face -face meetings are best. Uh, because there you get to have more of a, a, of a feeling of how that teacher um, cares or projects their caring for their kid. And I think for these families, um, a lot of the time, these kind of uh, is more important than the verbal communication that is happening. It's just to see and get that feel that I can trust this person with my kid. I know that what he or she is doing is for the best interest of my child because I can see it. I can see how he or she is um, trying to communicate with me, showing me work samples, uh, advocating for uh, me to uh, try to um, request for certain things for my child. Because I, as you know, a lot of the times teachers kind of have their hands tied a little bit. But if the parent uh, goes and, you know, makes requests, sometimes um, it's easier to access certain things for their child, like a communication device, for example. So um, all of these, uh, this relationship that, that you start creating with these families is what's going to, I think, have them feel a little bit more comfortable with you and then open up to you and try to create this trust, uh, which then you can start kind of injecting a little bit of like, okay, so let me show you, this is working really well when, you know, Johnny's having tantrums in the classroom, this is how we handle it. And we have noticed that this has helped decrease the duration of these tantrums. And then they can start kind of teaching those techniques that can then be hopefully carried into the home. Now the parent has this trust and is more likely to bring these strategies into the home rather than maybe strategies that they have been using because that's what they learn either from their parents or from what their school used to be. You know, a lot of the times in our countries, unfortunately, there's not special education. There's no um, access to education to a lot of the children who have, especially the more uh, complex 
uh, disabilities. So we don't get to witness any of these growing up in, in these classrooms. And typically when anyone misbehaves in the classroom, uh, these uh, misbehaviors get suppressed by some type of punishment. So we learned that, okay, punishment is the way to go. If we don't want to see someone misbehaving, quote unquote, then, you know, we need to punish it somehow. And uh, by teachers being able to explain other avenues and show how those work, then, uh, and now this trust already exists between the teachers and the, the families, then uh, I, we can see that they are more willing to, you know, adopt these new strategies. And the same thing happens in the ABA field when I work with families in their homes and I see, you know, the type of strategies that they're using. And then, you know, I don't just go in there and say, well, that's, that's not allowed. You cannot do that. Uh, we just kind of talk about, okay, so how's that working for you? And how, you know, have you seen progress? So let's take some data for, you know, these days and, and see what the average is. And then let's try these other things and see if we can start seeing some other changes. And, and again, it's not about me kind of imposing my will and saying, well, you're doing it wrong or, you know, that's, you know, but it's more about, okay, well, let me listen to what you have to say. Let me try to understand where you're coming from. And then let's see if there's other ways in which we can kind of uh, have this worked out. So Myra, I, you know, you mentioned the word trust several times there and, um, and relationships. And that's actually what I was going to ask you about this morning, because I'm going to ask you for some, some off the cuff behind the scenes info. So I'm just really curious um, when you, when you go to like, let's just say an IEP meeting or any kind of meeting with teachers, you know, with parents um, who are non-native speakers, if you speak the same language, do they like do they talk like more informally to you? Like, hey, this, this lady seems crazy. You know, like, do they, do they, does, does the fact that you can literally understand them? Right. Um, does it impact, do you think, the nature, you know, of your relationship with them at the meeting? Right. So I find myself at times feeding a lot of like, you know, this is what you need to say kind of thing in Spanish. Yeah. In Spanish, because I, I still struggle because they, a lot of the, at least the families that I have worked with and gone to IP meetings with, um, are, are very timid about questioning, um, you know, uh, what the, 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 the school is presenting as their option. And sometimes there's really no other options. This is how we're going to do things. And, you know, um, I, I actually was just at a meeting not too long ago and um, the kid had uh, received an, a referral and the, and the mother signed it and then she kind of ran it by me and, and she said, so what is this a referral for? She thought it was like a service, like they did a referral to refer him to some type of service that he was going to get. I'm like, no, this is not that kind of referral. This is a behavioral refer referral because he hit a teacher and that, you know, uh, this is what that entails and da, da, da. I'm like, how about you ask for a meeting so they can explain what happened because the paper doesn't really have that information. So she asked for the meeting. It was a, a, a video meeting and uh, at the meeting, um, it comes to uh, I, we, we, we come to find out that what happened is that this happened in the hallway and uh, it was another assistant from another classroom who saw the kid drop into the floor and came and physical started uh, 
you know, trying to get him up and to follow the directions. And he's not the type of kid who you can physically try to, you know, uh, move around. And so he responded by kicking her. So that was it. And I like telling the mom in Spanish, it's like, you know, this person is not supposed to be putting his hand on your kid. You know, you, just, right. you know that, right? Like, you know, so I like talking like, okay, so she's saying that why is this person... <laughs> Because I was right. the one translating. Why is this person putting her hands on her kid? Like, she's not even part of the classroom. So, like, I'm trying to, you know, kind of, like, feed her information at the same time, kind of just advocating for her in that way. But but this happens a lot because they they tend to just kind of go with, you know, what what is given to them, right. uh, especially when there's that language ba- barrier, they kind of, I think, feel embarrassed to ask questions and having to get them to find a translator and all of these things or interpreter. Uh, so they tend to not ask questions. And then when you start doing a little digging, then you come to find out that, oh, well, maybe that shouldn't have happened. And maybe you needed to to ask questions. <laughs> it's funny though, though uh, Myra, as you say that, uh, I was actually on an IEP the other day too, um, and it happened to be all English because again, I shamefully monolingual because I just, I didn't even have a foreign language class in high school, which is interesting, but- um, Forgive yourself, Lisa. It's funny. I, yeah, it really does bother me, but you know, and again, I guess I could do something about that, but uh, just say age and language development don't actually go together. <laughs> But, but it's funny because I was doing the same thing in a back channel. We were texting each other. So I do want to remind families when you're in a meeting and you need help, don't be shy because immediately it was like, well, we'll test for referral. And if we move from 504 to IEP, then they'll go in the special ed classroom. I'm like, uh, please use the word least restrictive environment. And that's not where we start, you know? So I think that that, that technology as well as, as interpreters, and, and an advocate. And then the last thing I just wanted to quickly say there too, is even I, as a parent, I took Becky to IP meetings with me and, because it doesn't matter if you speak the language or not. It, it's still like, you, you're, you're like, what's a referral? You know, was it a referral for an award? was it a referral for behavior? Was it a referral for testing? Even I, who know the language. So again, for our parents out there, don't be afraid to bring somebody period, no matter what language you have, but I really do value that you bring. I'm going to kind of ask my last question here. And I just want to know, I'm, I'm in a classroom, I'm teaching. Um, I have this amazing family that cares as deeply about their child as any family in, in the world does. Uh, it doesn't matter their language, doesn't matter if they're an immigrant, documented, undocumented, they're standing in front, that child is sitting in a chair. What is the thing I could do best for that child with a special need that maybe has behavioral challenges that really English is a struggle. What are some, like, what are your two go-to tips for me to always keep in the back of my mind in the classroom? That's, that's my last question. Right. So, um, I mean, again, my dissertation had to do with parent involvement and I really strongly feel that this is the, the, the first thing that as teachers we need to do is to make sure that we are providing the support so that the family can be as involved as possible with the progress that this child can make. Uh, Because we have them for a couple of hours and then they go home and they're there the rest of the time and they're there every day, every year. We, you know, so, so our time with this child is precious, but it's short. So we need to make sure that 
if we feel we can really make an impact on this child, we need to make an impact on the family so that our impact can go year after year, right? It can be carry on. So I think that's key. And then the other key is, again, like trying to create a uh, trust relationship with you know, the, the child as well, not just the family. Um, you know, we, we don't know uh, the background uh, a lot. We don't know a lot of the details, but we do know that every child needs to have people who they feel care for them and have their best interest in mind. And we can show that. We can show that every day. We can show that by, by not allowing um, behaviors uh, or struggles that the child may be having uh, rule how we are going to be responding in a negative way to those uh, struggles. If we can then turn it around and try to be more positive, trying to figure it out the function of those behaviors and try to figure it out how to then give them better avenues to express themselves and to get their needs met, then I think that's going to be a win-win for you know for, for you as a teacher and for the child as well. And those are again skills that they're going to carry after they leave your classroom, which is really what we should try to focus on. It's not just what's going to happen during this, you know, four, six hours, whatever we have the child, but what's going to happen with this child's life because it's great having them until uh, high school and they, but then because I also work with adults it's like oh my goodness what happened here like why wasn't there someone who could have you know so so that's that's sometimes sad to see so we we just need to make sure that they have as many tools as possible so when they don't have the school support anymore that they know how to navigate so Myra I I I think those are all great specific tips and I, I want to kind of lean into that parent involvement piece one last time in our discussion. So there's a difference between being, you know, an interpreter who's, who's representing somebody, you know, more formally and then being, you know, an advocate, as Lisa said, literally, we look, she would, she would ask me to go just so I could hear it. And like, she could bounce it back off of me informally and say, is this what I heard? Did that lady say this? And we're literally sitting at the table, right. you know, with somebody who speaks our own language. Yeah. So I can imagine um, if, if yeah. we have a, a language barrier. So, right. Do you know of um, any, any schools or uh, I say schools in particular, but <clears throat> it could be other agencies where, where there are parent groups who can be that informal advocate? Have you seen any schools that have built just networks of, of, of families, just so there's other moms, mom groups, anything like that? Because I think um, parents of kids with disabilities often already feel like they're in a bit of a silo, I think. And so then if you had one more barrier of language, I can only imagine how isolating that might feel. So do you have any examples or ideas for schools um, and on how they might better connect these families? Um, yes, and, and you're absolutely right in regards to the uh, translating part. I've been at meetings where we have someone translating and it just becomes, you know, so 
dry uh, the information that they're trying to translate. Sometimes it doesn't even make sense where I'm just like, no, 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 just, can I just take over and do the translation? Because it's just really not making sense that the message sometimes just gets lost because you kind of need to know the situation, not just the the, the word by word translation. So, um, and in regards to your question about support groups, so uh, one of um, uh, the uh, places where I see my family is getting most support from is either um, uh, groups like, uh, for example, again, it's going to depend also on uh, a lot of times on the diagnosis of the child. But for example, we have the Autism Society of Greater Orlando. They have a great, uh, you know, support group that kind of breaks into ages and uh, provides different types of uh, networking uh, for for the families. Uh, we have the Down uh, Syndrome. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a lot of different organizations within our community that we can start, you know, uh, by contacting and seeing what kind of uh, support they have there. A lot of the times uh, we'll find parents who have been navigating the system for years and kind of already know a lot of the, the tricks and uh, can provide that support. And a lot of the times the parents are bilingual as well and very willing to help. Um, I know that a lot of parents uh, go to uh, Facebook uh, groups, like social groups that are formed in Facebook, where they also find a good network of support. And they uh, daily, uh, you know, put messages there about maybe workshops that are happening, or let's get together for, you know, the social activity, which a lot of the times, you know, is, is just as needed as anything else. It's just having those social gatherings where you can just have a great time and, you know, socialize with others. So, so those are typically um, where I can see uh, that families tend to, to find the supports. Uh, but also, you know, there's uh, support uh, systems in churches, support systems at the universities within uh, your community. Um, and not necessarily has to be specific to your child's disability. It could be uh, just a, a parent group. It could be a sp spouse type of support system, you know? I mean, there are so many um, different challenges that as a family you can be going through. So you can always try to find more specifics. But when it comes to, to the IEP and people who can maybe go to these meetings with you, uh, again, uh, uh, places like uh, the Car Center, places like uh, uh, the uh, ASCO, the Autism Society of Great Orlando, you know, you'll find uh, maybe uh, those supports there. And I think I think uh, for those for those teachers or families who aren't in the uh, Central Florida area, I think I think that a, a quick Facebook or, or Google search, you could find something that's either national that might be able to remotely advise um, families or hopefully something local in your neighborhood. So thank you, Myra, for, for that. And I, I do want to encourage teachers to uh, if you when you when you have a student who is bilingual, you know, Myra, you mentioned you know, see the kid, not the behavior, um, you know, don't make presumptions about the kids, but also um, help help parents connect with with other parents who can help them, even if you're not a native um, speaker. So, um, Lisa, you want to wrap us up? And uh, thank you so much, Myra, for joining us today. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Myra. And if you have questions for us, please send them on Facebook or send us a tweet at Access Practical. Uh, and our Facebook page is Practical Access. Uh, we look forward to folks listening to your podcast, Myra. And thanks for your words of wisdom and all your advocacy for families. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys.